if a person is running. Maybe the person even enjoys running. And the person runs for a long time. The person sooner or later will become tired. And tired enough, the natural, more or less the natural thing to do is to stop running and to go walking. Because walking is not as tiring. And actually a person might catch their breath by walking and kind of recover a little bit from all the running. But then if the person continues walking for a long time, at some point their body gets tired in other ways, and then a natural thing to do would be to sit down. But if you sit for a long time, at some point the body gets tired and ready for more rest, and the natural thing is to go to a less, even less active state and to lie down. So it's going from a more active state to a progressively less active state, from a less rested state to a more and more rested state, from a more energized state or active state to a stiller state. A person might be sitting on retreat and there might be, you know, the, in the top 10 concerns might be resentment about something that happened in the past. And the person might be spending a lot of time reviewing the conversation, the events, spinning out, figuring out what to do. And if you keep doing this on retreat, at some point you, it feels like this is tiring. I'm exhausted from all this. In daily life, luckily we get interrupted too often, pretty often from our obsessions. So we don't kind of build up the same familiarity with the obsessive mind as we do in retreat. And so in retreat, one of the advantages is you can finally get tired of some of this stuff. You know, enough. And so it might say this, you know, at some point, uh, the, the, the exhaustion, the tiredness, the strain of the resentful thoughts becomes so clear, enough. Enough. And so maybe then now, without the resentment, maybe number two, the top ten, is now it's a little bit calmer, is to just have desire thoughts. They come a little more naturally, they kind of bubble up. Desire thoughts go on for a little bit of time, a few years. And after a while, <laughs> after a while, you know, they seem like they're, you know, kind of tiring, a little bit too much. And the person kind of seems like it's natural to let them quiet down, and maybe they're replaced by number three on the list. And that's a quieter kind of thoughts. And maybe now it's just concern about being comfortable here and now. So, so you're here and just looking around and checking out your body. And, but after a while, to be concerned about being comfortable here, just that seems a little bit tiring to keep thinking that way. So put that to rest. And then maybe the mind is involved with just simply a very simple evaluation of what's going on. Is this good? Is it bad? Is it, am I doing it right? Am I not doing it right? But it's very soft. After a while, that seems too much. And then it just come, becomes, the thoughts become more and more simple. And they just become just, oh, there's, there's an itch. 
there's an ache, there's a breath, there's a sound, simple. At some point it might even seem, that seems too much, even that. And, and even those kinds of simple thoughts get put down. And so the same with, with the idea of running to lying down, the principles is in practice we go from more active states to stiller, quieter, more peaceful or restful states. And so there's a movement in a particular direction that we're going. And it isn't so we just put ourselves to sleep. That's not the point. But rather, uh, it's to be able to still the busy discursive mind enough so that it's not clouding our vision or obscuring our vision. So we can really have a clear seeing or clear presence um, here and now. So that the clarity that's un, not filtered by a lot of thoughts, not filtered by a lot of desires or whatever it might be, can see in a way that's not possible if we have the obscurations in the way. And as practice goes along, parts of us, you know, not only gets stiller, but the idea also it gets clearer. In some ways, we, the, 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 you know, the idea of waking up and not going to sleep is operable in Buddhism. There's a clarity, a feeling of just being here in a clear, upright way. The image for this kind of clarity and presence, it's very still that at the same time has a kind of dynamism to it, dynamic, is that of a candle flame when there's no wind. And, you know, it's, you look at the candle flame and maybe it seems completely, you know, in a certain kind of way, it doesn't move, it doesn't vary, just... But, you know, we know the flame inside the candle, in the, inside that flame, it's very dynamic, what's going on. But there's a stillness to it. And um, deep concentration in Buddhism is sometimes likened to uh, like a dynamic flame that's very, very still. So, um, so we're kind of, that's kind of the kind of the movement. And so, in terms of there being a path to practice, um, there's many ways in which that path. path path unfolds, there's many ups and downs and swirls and spirals and it takes many ways appropriately. But overall, overall the overarching kind of direction is to move towards uh, more peaceful states, less activity, less, less thinking, less reacting, less churning, and a settling, quiet, becoming stiller. And um, and the journey through uh, the Anapanasati, these 16 stages, is a journey that can be understood in this way as well. And, um, and then as we get to the last tetrad, uh, the stage is set where the stillness, the clarity, the presence hopefully is strong enough that we can start seeing um, in a more acute way than usual, start seeing the inconstant nature of our experience, how things change all the time. And many people say things are always changing, but um, the, the, in Buddhist practice there's a, there's a different way of experiencing change that comes when the mind is really peaceful, still, quiet, that um, 
it see we see that in constant nature of things in a different way, but more important, when the mind is still, peaceful, soft, um, kind of receptive, um, the seeing clearly in the constant nature of reality can have a have a beneficial effect on us. It can impact us in a way that uh, you know really is very supportive and helpful. So it's not just a matter of having insight to see, it's also to have a state of mind where that insight can do its work on us. So there's this movement towards this, this direction. And in some ways uh, you can see that the, the first tetrad was mindfulness of the body. It's, that's how it's kind of labeled. And, um, and it goes, it starts with the breathing feeling the whole body or the whole breath body, and then relaxing the body. And as the body body relaxes, then uh, it tends to become more, unless you fall asleep, it tends to become more alive, more sensations are available, more presence is available in the body, more attention, more awareness. And um, so, in the, but the body is a little bit coarser than that which is a little more kind of more intimate, more closer in in a sense. And that's the next foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, the, foundation, uh, mindf the, uh, the foundation on feelings, Vedana. The third, the third, uh, third uh, tetrad corresponds to a mindfulness of the mind, and that's getting more subtle, more intimate, more kind of, I like to think of it, more coming in to home, to, deep inside who, you know, where our, closer to where our home is, maybe within. And so then, you know, it's moving into the mind. And then from the mind, then we go to the fourth tetrad and the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of dharmas. And this has to do become mindful of the deep, deep processes within that, um, that uh, come into play, that are kind of activated to either bring us suffering or lead us towards freedom. And in some ways, these, these are deep processes that are more subtle in this quiet, greater stillness we can see and they operate. And the fact that they may be more subtle doesn't mean that they're less important. It's sometimes they're like the root, you know, that, that, that from which, or this, this, this spring from which the, everything arises. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is Vedana, usually translated in English as feelings. And, um, and the word Vedana uh, comes from the verb Vedati, which means uh, to, to, to know, or to experience, or to feel. To feel as an experience. And so, uh, Vedana is the what we feel, what we experience, what we know in some direct way. And, um, you know, originally the word didn't mean what it's come to mean, what we, many Western Dharma students think of it as, you know, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's just, it's just what we feel. The direct experience, when we have contact with things, there's an experience of feeling something. But feeling it 
uh, has the, uh, one of the very really important qualities of of feeling or this contact or experience is uh, whether or not it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And uh, and it's possible, at least our minds can make this make this distinction, possible to see uh, with great clarity sometimes the pleasantness of an experience as just simply pleasant. That's pleasant. Or the unpleasant of situation. Oh, that's unpleasant. I've been in challenging situations, social situations, like it's so complicated and so like the dynamics and interpersonal stuff and what's going on and trying to, you know, just, you know, if I was going to try to figure out what's going on, I'd, I'd need to rest afterwards. You know, but, you know, and I was challenged. And then I, I, said, I said, wait a minute, Gil. This is an unpleasant situation. And I thought, oh, I'll just be with the, I know how to be with unpleasantness. So I said, okay, I'll just be unpleasant. <laughs> and it's so much easier than trying to figure out the, you know, the, the subtlety or the grossness or whatever of all these interpersonal things that are going on. If I don't have to actually make, you know, figure it all out. Just unple it's unpleasant. Standing here, it's unpleasant. And I know how to be with unpleasant. Or situations that are really pleasant. Sometimes to recognize, simply, oh, this is un uh, this is pleasant. It just kind of simplifies it, and kind of somehow, somehow, occasionally, will allow me to kind of separate away my desires for it, my expectations for it, my, you know, all this extra stuff we add. Oh, it's just it's just a pleasant situation. I can feel the pleasantness, but to see it that simple makes me a little easier to be with it. So I'm a little bit freer with it. Oh, just unpleasant. And then there's the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is, um, um, you know, sometimes people say neutral, but that's not quite right. But some experiences, you know, they're not so often, they're not, we do see either the pleasant or unpleasant. And um, the Buddha had an analogy for these feelings. Well, first I'll say that they occur every time there's anything that we know or feel or experience, it comes along with one of these three flavors. There's no other option. I mean, there are other, there are other aspects to the experience and the feeling for sure, but in terms of these feeling tones, it's those three. So it kind of makes things pretty simple. So that's if you tune into that part of it. And the Buddha uh, had a few analogies for feelings. Uh, one is, it's like the wind. And uh, maybe in the plains of India where the Buddha lived, you can imagine maybe the winds change direction frequently. And so, um, so the wind changes north to south, it moves around. And it just, you know, so feelings come and it's like the wind. They come and they go, different things happen. Sometimes we're in a situation that's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, and it's just the shifting circumstances we're in, and it's like the weather. And sometimes just recognizing it's the weather, it's just the weather, you know, it can be a little bit easier to be with it. When I went to live in, when I was living in Tennessee, <coughs> I learned within a f day or two of being there, that apparently a saying in Tennessee, and that is, if you don't like the weather, 
wait five minutes. And in fact, I don't know if the bread changed that frequently, but that was a little saying. But in fact, it did change a lot. And just, just so it's okay. When I lived in Hawaii, when I first got there and there was a tropical downpour, I was alarmed and I ran for cover. And I very quickly found out you don't have to do that in Hawaii because these tropical downpours are usually very brief and they're refreshing. And when they stop, it doesn't take long for you to dry out. So just after a while, you just keep walking. It's like, you know, nothing. So, so the idea that um, these feelings are like weather, like the wind, can maybe kind of an interesting comparison. Interesting. The other thing, an analogy for these feelings the Buddha gave, well, he said, um, in the autumn, maybe it's, I don't know if it's really heavy rain in India in the autumn, but uh, when big raindrops are falling on the river, apparently they, uh, the big raindrops would fall and make bubbles. And those bubbles don't exist for very long. The rain, raindrop made bubbles, you know, pop it right away. And so he said, uh, feelings are like that. These little subtle kind of moment to moment, instant to instant little aspects of feelings. And if you actually tune in very carefully, really get in there, really feel the sensations that you're having, pleasant or unpleasant, really feel it. I think that it's the way that maybe the nerves fire, the way that nerves pick up sense data. Um, it does it in packets, you know, or pixels or something. It does it, in, you know, it's like, you know, little pieces at a time. And, uh, but you have to be very, very, very refined in the attention to really feel, actually it's arising and passing. It's like a little dance of sensations. From a distance, especially if we experience it through the filter of our concepts, our ideas, it can feel very solid and unchanging. Like this is not changing whatsoever. This is like, this pain is not moving. This, this is solid and substantial and it's there. And it's, and it's certainly, if that's how it's being experienced, in a certain sense it is. Not to deny it, but if you go in and, and really go in and dive into it with attention and really get into the close in, um, in fact, it's like the raindrops. It's kind of like pops and comes and goes and comes. As soon as it's raindrop makes a bubble, as soon as the bubble forms, it's popping. As soon as the sensation appears, it's already gone. But then it's followed with another one right next to it, or the next, you know, so it can, if you tie them all together, they can feel like they're constant, but actually they're, it's like, you know, it's like the movie frames. There's no movement on the screen. It's just, there's all these little still shots. So it's a fascinating world this world of feeling if we pay careful attention. One of the reasons to pay attention to the feelings is that um, many of our likes and dislikes, many of our reactions to the world are conditioned on whether we experience it as pleasant or unpleasant. And it's fairly natural for when something's unpleasant to not like it or not want it. It's fairly, natu fairly natural when it's pleasant to want it. Though sometimes it's you know, of course, it changes. Sometimes it's the opposite for all kinds of complicated reasons. 
but it's uh, if it's possible to kind of sit and watch the pleasant and unpleasant stuff arise when it appears, sometimes that gives us a vantage point to see the next layers of of uh, desires, aversions, expectations, projections, beliefs that come into play, memories that come into play that contribute to our reaction to the feeling. And if we can decouple all the, all the kind of cascade of reactions from the initial feeling, there's actually kind of freedom there. Just let it be, just let it be the feeling. The rest of it, let it be. It doesn't have to kind of cascade and arise. So, um, at opening evening here, I talked about there is what is known and how we know it. There is what we experience and how we experience it. There is what we are aware of and then how we're aware or the awareing of it, the awareness of it. And, um, and many times uh, those are entangled so that if I know something, I'm already involved in it with my beliefs, my preferences, my aversions, my you know fears, all kinds of things are just come really quickly right in there. So much so that sometimes we don't see the difference between the thing and the complicated inner world that I have. The, um, the, um, I've had things which uh, hurt me and then maybe more innocent things, but things I felt hurt by and uh, like injured by and then if I see something that resembles it, um, you know, there's this complicated history with that thing, and I kind of see it almost as being, I see it as a dangerous thing, even though it, in and of itself is not dangerous. But I have this, you know, more complicated relationship to it. So they're coupled, they're over, overlapping. Or I see something that I want, and it becomes, a des in and of itself, a desirable thing. I don't see it as a thing, and the desire is separate. It's kind of like because life we're going so quickly. So the way that sense data, objects, what we know, comes into us, it often has a ripple effect inside and we absorb it in some way. Kind of like, a little bit like, I don't know if this is a good analogy, standing in the sun and feeling the warmth as it comes in. We comes in and it kind of has a ripple effect going in. But it doesn't have to be. It's possible to have, to see something, there's the object, there's the seeing, and they're seen as two distinct things. The seeing just stands by itself. And it doesn't have to go anywhere. It doesn't have to cascade into beliefs and desires and aversions and all the other things. Just or hearing, just hearing. It doesn't have to be associated with anything. It doesn't have to be associated with just just hearing. And um, so again, an analogy that the Buddha gave 
Imagine that there's a lake, and that lake, um, a kind of a mountain lake, and um, there are no rivers flowing into the lake. And there's no rain falling into the lake. So how does a lake get replenished? This lake gets replenished by an underwater spring that springs up from the inside. The rivers is an analogy for the five senses that we have. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and tactile sense. And when there's a way in which those sense experiences, when they flow in like rivers, that um, they can sometimes fill us in all kinds of ways. They depend a lot on our reactions, our response to it, and what we do with it. But some people use sense experience to pump them up, pump themselves up, to get a good, a good energy going, to get pleasure going, to feel good about themselves, to feel successful, to feel safe, to feel, you know, like, you know, that, I don't know, something. And, uh, and some people are addicted to getting that getting filled that way. And so you're de dependent on the rivers flowing. And when there's a drought, it's a little bit of a, pro it's a problem. But then there's also the rain. And the rain, in this analogy, are our thoughts that coming, that's, that's, you know, gets rained down from above. If your thoughts are up in your head, I guess. And, um, and uh, these thoughts are just like individual thoughts that come and go, like the rain. But those thoughts, they, ha they have an impact on, this, on that lake. And, um, and uh, they, they hit it, and there's a lot of thoughts, it agitates the water. And it's kind of, after a while, the water's not clear anymore, or it's not you know, still anymore, but it has those little ripples and wavelets and things. And um, because of the rain, you know, our thoughts are not innocent. Many of our thoughts are not innocent. The thoughts have an I impact on us. So if I spend time being resentful, if I have time judging other people as being somehow wrong or bad, or judging myself as bad, or you know, having kind of so what they call in English negative thoughts, um, often enough, those thoughts affect the rest of the system. They're depressing, they're heavy, they're a burden, they kind of created conditions of greater dis-ease, unease. Sometimes having positive thoughts does the opposite, lifts us up, makes us feel better. But, we're, but if we live dependent on the quality of our thoughts or what we're thinking to feed the lake, then we better keep this, you know, better join a positive thinking movement, you know, and really get into you know, just thinking a lot. <laughs> Keep the thoughts going, you know, and some people do this and they, oh, you, they, they overlay their deeper angst, their deeper anxiety or fears or difficult emotions and cover them over by being fast enough with, with their positive thoughts to kind of keep it all at bay. Some people use concentration states to do the same thing to keep something down in a way. 
And so at some point the idea is to, um, you know, in Buddhism is not to over, uh, cover over anything, but to let us see clearly what's there. Um, I mean, it's, uh, but you know, Buddhism also does positive thinking kind of thing, loving kindness, gratitude, appreciation. They have, a, definitely these things have their place in their life. But this lake has a, has a different source in which to get replenished. And this is the underground spring, which just keeps flowing month after month, year after year, drought, whatever's going on, just kind of, just keeps going. And this is, uh, the corresponds to the wellspring of goodness, wellsprings of good feelings that can arise, almost feeling like they're innate within us. They just kind of bubble up and arise and just kind of are flowing out in such a way that they're not dependent on what goes on in the world around us. Not dependent on whether the circumstances we're in are pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, independent of whether we get what we want or don't want. Uh, independent of, you know, all kinds of circumstances that are, you know, we're, we're in the world that people are chasing after or wanting. And, um, and to be filled from the inside um, without being, you know, requiring thoughts to reassure us, without having thoughts pull us down. To be filled from the inside without depending on sense pleasure to be a certain way. If you remember yesterday the analogy of mindfulness of the, of of the body, the Buddha talked about <clears throat> a jug of water that was full of water. And then Mara can't pour anything into it because it's full. Mara can't get in there. So there's something about being full, filling. So this inner wellspring of being full or present or being connected or if a sense of well-being or a sense of confidence, maybe a sense of strength, that, that somehow are established here from the inside out is one of the movements of practice. And it's very different, I think, than how many people negotiate the world where it's about fixing the world, rearranging the world, getting what one wants, you know, um, and it, it can be, it can seem that completely foreign to people that there's a sense, of, a powerful and valuable sense of well-being that can arise within without getting something or having the world, worldly desires fulfilled. In discuss, discussing these four foundations of mindfulness, the second foundation of Vedana, the Buddha makes a very important distinction between those feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which are of the flesh and those which are not of the flesh. Some translators say those which are feelings which are worldly and those which are spiritual. Um, one, one English translator did uh, those feelings which are physical and those which are psychological which is probably not so accurate. But anyway, this distinction. And, um, 
And this is, uh, as we settle into practice, at some point, one of the things that we begin feeling more of is some sense of inner pleasure, inner well-being, that uh, is doesn't arising because of getting our worldly desires met, but rather arises because we're relaxing in a deep way. The, 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 ten, the energy which is uh, locked up by being tense is beginning to be released. The, the sense of being no longer in our, lost in our thoughts and our heads and our reactivity lessens and there's more attention available to become aware of the body and to become integrated or unified as I talked about to be settled and calm, but settled in a way that allows the energies of the body to flow naturally or the sensations to be there. There's open, open body awareness here. And as we settle in, as the mind gets quieter, then it's, you know, this the flame of, I don't know what to call it, I, energies or the flow of sensations or positive feelings can begin arising seemingly for no reason except that we're calm and collected and focused. It's a little bit, you know, maybe discouraging for Buddhists to be told that it's just the oxytocin or serotonin which is flowing. <laughs> You know, it's like you know, we wish it had a little bit more of a, you know, something a little more spiritual than just <laughs> chemicals. But, uh, you know, who knows what it is, but it, you know, just this feeling wells up. And, and, um, and so the Buddha made this distinction between the pleasures that belong to the worldly life, which have a place, but also can be a great trap. And the unpleasant things that are of the world, which also can be a great trap and tremendous difficulty and challenge to live with it and negotiate it. And the unpleasant that's more deeper, what's, and some people call it spiritual going on. The pleasures of the spiritual pleasures, spiritual the pleasures are not of the flesh, uh, the Buddha, uh, referred to as coming from, I'll give you the Pali word, so first, from nekamma. Nekamma. Nekamma uh, literally means, the roots of the word, something like going forth. And I think of it as um, you're stuck up in the mountains in the snow, in a one-room little cabin, snowed in all winter with all your relatives. <laughs> <laughs> and you, maybe you love your relatives even, but, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> all winter long, snowed in one room 
And then so all winter long, and then finally spring comes and the snow melts, and finally you're able to open the door and go out. You're able to go forth. And you go forth into the open air, the fresh air, and it feels so good. And the idea of renouncing that small cabin, and for temporarily renouncing for that day your relatives, so you can go out and get the fresh air and the space and distance and it's like you feel like you've found yourself again. You're, you get to be yourself again out there maybe. So the word nekama means to go forth and it might be unfortunate but the way it's translated into English is as renunciation. That uh, the the spiritual pleasure, the spiritual kind of, this of not of the flesh, are those pleasures that arise from letting go deeply, going forth into freedom, letting go into the spaciousness of not being contracted or tight or claustrophobic in one's own mind. And so, as we, you know, this deep movement in Buddhism of going from more active states to calmer states is also going from states that were more resistance and clinging, which is an active thing, you know, to hold your fist tight and your hand tight in the fist takes a lot of energy. It's more relaxing, much less energy to have your hand open. So this movement towards going forth movement towards renunciation in, in the Buddhist English is a movement from energetic states that are exhausting to states which are quite nice but don't require so much energy, the open hand. And so as the hand opens, I think in some ways it might be very subtle, but there's nice feelings in there that maybe aren't there if we have a hand clenched tight, which is unpleasant. And so as we settle in with practice, as we begin to relax the body, as we let go of our preoccupations and thoughts, there is a kind of carrot in the practice, which you know can cause problems if we want too much, get attached and chase after and expect and all this. But there is a little carrot in this all this, and that is we are moving towards states of pleasure, of well-being. That, have, that you can't make happen, but you kind of make the conditions for it to arise. And some of those conditions are to be simple, to slow down, to relax, to soften in the body, to not be giving in to every thought train that comes along, Learn how to not be caught in your in your thoughts, and to settle in here. And as we settle in here and feel the present moment, the sense of presence and being here, then uh, it's a little bit like uh, maybe you ha maybe you can think of a better analogy, but a little bit like having an umbrella. And remember all those thoughts that are raining down the lake, and they imp they impact the lake. But now you have like this you know, umbrella, or in futuristic language, a force field. 
that um, you know those thoughts. You still might have those thoughts, but those thoughts are kind of don't automatically hit hit you and affect you and weigh you down. You, you might have a negative thought, and it just kind of drifts by, and we don't pick it up, we don't react to it, we don't do anything. We leave it alone. We have the umbrella of kind of being settled. A good thought goes by, and we don't pick that up because it's a, even though it's a good thought. There's a better just to be here and not involved in that thinking. It's just a more subtle place. So the <clears throat> in the second tetrad of Anapanasati, um, it says, the first, uh, first step is, one trains oneself when one experiences joy, one knows it's joy. Oh, it looks a little different. One trains oneself that when breathing in, one experiences joy, one knows it's joy. When one breathes out, one experiences joy, one knows one experiencing joy. And then the next step is, when one, is ex when one breathes out, and I guess we breathe in first. When one breathes in, one experiences one experiences happiness. One knows one experiences happiness. When one breathes out, and knows that and and feels happiness, one knows one experiencing happiness. And these joy and happiness, joy both you know it's exactly what these are is not so important. But they are this this moment, but they involve states of well-being. I like the word well-being because it's kind of very broad, and I'm hoping that many people can find something inside of themselves that relates to some sense of well-being. But once you use the word joy, pity in Pali, or happiness, sukha, uh, it's a little bit more complicated, and you know. It's Maybe a little bit sense like it has to be a particular thing, a particular kind of joy, a particular happiness, or something it has to be though. But well-being is hopefully just relaxed word, and you know, oh yeah, I feel well-being. I don't know if it's the you know, you know, the particular one of the five types of joy, of pity, that is listed in the Visuddhimagga. You know, that's the right one, you know, on those five, you know. It, you know, this gets complicated, but if you just, oh, just well-being. So part of the Anapanasati involves an explicit part of the training is to tune into the sense of well-being when it arises in the practice. And in my early years of practice, myself, both in Zen and in Theravada, I was never given any indication that I was allowed to experience states of well-being. Like it was okay to be happy. In Zen sometimes I was more just more gruff. <laughs> Bodhidharma has this upside-down smile. <laughs> you know, it's like all the, all the joy, you know, falls out then. <laughs> you want to keep it in, you better smile up the corners of your mouth. So, so um, 
And I was good at the upside down smile. I realized that's in. And, um, but, um, so it's complicated to give instructions to feel well-being because many times we don't feel this. And we don't have to feel all the time. What we have to feel is what's true, what's really going on. That's the doorway. Learning how to be present for how things are, how it is at the moment. That's a doorway to this deeper connection. It's a doorway to really finding out how to rest and be present in a deep, intimate way. But letting go, going forth. Some of you, I think, have been in your little one-room cabin for many winters now, for a long, long time. It's a little bit claustrophobic in there with all the thoughts and ideas and concerns that you have. That Some of you are really ready for spring to come and to open the door and to go forth or to let go. Letting go is kind of going forth. It's kind of fresh air and open. So the you know, the first tetrad ended with relaxing the bottle, body, relaxing the bodily formations. The next tetrad begins with feeling the well-being. So, so as you continue practicing, start feeling, even if it's very subtle, recognize whatever sense of well-being that's here. And there's a wide range of things that you can feel as well-being. Um, you know, it could be, some of you might actually have forgotten how good it is not to have to go to work. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or to go shopping for food and then cook it. And then you have to clean all of your dishes. Even those of you who do dishes here and pots here, there can be kind of a pleasure doing these pots. <laughs> but the pots at home, I mean, they, they somehow don't have the same pizzazz as IRC pots and doing it with a team and, you know, in the kitchen. And, you know, like it's like, I mean, that's, you know. So, you know, the, the simplicity here, the so many responsibilities put down, and the chance to have space and be with yourself, even the chance to suffer. Um, I don't want to champion suffering too much, but, uh, but as suffering is true. It does happen. And we can spend our time distracted from it, too busy for it, um, that we don't really have time for ourselves, so we don't really feel how difficult our inner life is and our challenges and conflicts and suffering we have. Here, you can feel what's, what's really happening, and there's a pleasure, delight, you know, to, oh, finally I get to suffer. Where else can you do it in such a good way? <laughs> in a useful way, in a way that kind of gets you connected and gets you to discover what's really going on and maybe helps you work through it or relax around it or it feels like now I'm connected to something. I know I know own people who felt, yeah, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, 
but actually I feel real for the first time. Because when I'm not feeling this, I'm lost in fantasy. I'm lost in an unreal world. And at least this feels real now. And then, to, you know, so there's a kind of well-being that you can call it, it's not masochistic, but you know, it's kind of a well-being just to feel, oh, this is how it now, here, this is good. Finally, I get to look at this and be with this. And maybe there's a relaxing around this, our suffering, a softening around it. Maybe there's a letting up of a reactivity around it. It's giving space to it. So there's a variety of kind of, many kinds of well-being that can be here. And they're often overlooked. We have many things to be concerned about, important things to be concerned about, that to take time to just feel what's good here. Now that I'm, maybe because I'm getting older, I, uh, I don't sleep as well as I used to. And I find it great to wake up in the middle of the night and not appeal to sleep because I might first have thoughts, uh, miserable thoughts. Uh-oh, I need to sleep. If I don't get enough sleep, I'll be tired tomorrow. I'll be, and things will go wrong. Nothing will be right. And I'm all, you know, thinking about the future. But then I, then I switch and say, what's going on now? Well, I'm pretty safe laying here in bed. I'm pretty nice temperature. It's kind of soft. The sheets, nice. I've had enough to eat. That's pretty good. Many people in the world don't. I'd say in the moment, there's not any problem. The problems that I have come from the desire to fall asleep and the fear about what it means if I don't. Part of the virtual reality world. But I can just feel, feel the goodness. And it turns out if I do that, I'm more likely to fall asleep than if I feel the badness of it. Or to go out here, you know, and I've gone out in beautiful settings and not noticed my good fortune of being in a beautiful setting because I had, I had important conflicts to debate in my head or something. There's more well-being available than most people avail themselves of. And this doesn't mean manufacturing it, it doesn't mean pretending, it doesn't mean, you know, being kind of Pollyannish. It's just, there's much more than most people can recognize. So as you're sitting here and settling into the retreat, as you're breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out, just staying with it, feeling your body, getting to know your body, become familiar with your body, letting your body show itself, reveal itself to you, the sensations of the body. And as it becomes, when it's easy enough to soften, relax the body, there might come a time 
where you start feeling a little bit of sense of well-being. As you breathe in and breathe out, breathe with that well-being. In your peripheral awareness, your central awareness, stay with the breathing. In your peripheral awareness, uh, uh, kind of like you're breathing with the well-being. Breathing through it. Or in your peripheral awareness, which doesn't have, I think center, the peripheral awareness doesn't have sharp edges, beginning and end of it. As you breathe in and out, maybe you can allow that well-being, however subtle it might be, to, to expand out into the, that periphery or into the body or spread or settle. What kind of what kind of sense of well-being? It's different than pleasure. Pleasure comes from physical contact, physical, you know, the nerves being somehow pleasured. But this deeper well-being, maybe something that spreads or glows or that's maybe more, maybe more akin to a kind of expansiveness or spaciousness or openness. Or maybe for some people, maybe a tenderness. Or maybe for some people, a fire. Sometimes the well-being can be quite strong. The fire has been lit, burning. So, in the 16 steps, this is part of the path, part of the movement from what's more active to what becomes more subtle, is to actually allow yourself to feel and experience and recognize the well-being that might be here. And let it be a support, it turns out that the, it can be a support that supports the mind to get quieter. And you might notice that as your mind drifts off in thought, you might lose touch with the well-being. And the well-being becomes kind of a biofeedback system to encourage you to don't get lost in thought, don't get drift off in those places. Stay here, stay connected, stay present. And when you're not feeling that kind of well-being, don't worry about it. At any moment, you go back to step one in Anapanasati. Just breathing in a long breath, I know I'm breathing in a long breath, and so forth. Just, be, just come back, just be with your breathing. In the course of a day, You'll be starting fresh at the first step many times. And then maybe it'll unfold in a certain direction, way, and then it'll be time to start again. Very simple, keep it simple. And in the right time, with, with 
time with practice, may you be filled from the inside like a refreshing spring, mountain spring in a lake. Thank you.